Hi, I'm David Green, and thank you for tuning in to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. The role of the Chief People Officer and the function they lead has arguably never been so important. Chief People Officers are at the forefront of leading their companies through dramatic change. They are at the fulcrum of redefining the future of work, reshaping organisational cultures, and creating environments where talent can thrive. They are doing all this at a time of rapid transformation for the HR function itself. So in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Paolo Pisano, Chief Human Resources Officer at Booking Holdings and Chief People Officer at Booking.com, to discuss how he has helped steer the company's HR strategies during what can only be described as unprecedented times, especially given that Paolo assumed his roles a matter of days before the COVID lockdowns in March 2020. In our conversation, we will delve into how Paolo orchestrates a talent strategy that accommodates varied cultural nuances and work preferences. We'll uncover the strategies employed at Booking.com to maintain a cohesive company culture during the pandemic, and we'll also explore the concept of the 360-degree employee experience at the company and how it extends beyond traditional work parameters to support holistic employee development and well-being. With Paolo's extensive experience and strategic vision, we are set to explore some of the most pressing issues facing chief people officers and senior HR leaders today and uncover the strategies that have helped Booking.com emerge stronger in these challenging times. So without further ado, let's welcome Paolo to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Paolo, thank you for joining me on the show. But before we dive into the conversation, could you give listeners a, a brief introduction to you and maybe your background and also your role at Booking.com? Thanks, David. It's a pleasure to be here. So as you mentioned, I currently lead uh, HR for, actually for Booking Holdings, and I double hat as Chief People Officer for Booking.com uh, as well. So before Booking Holdings, I spent the uh, last couple of decades in, in the HR, uh, OD, change management space. I've done uh, roles across a number of industries, you know, starting in, uh, actually started as a, as a management consultant that then went into, into the HR route in, the, in financial services. And then throughout the years, I did uh, work in financial services and media and education and um, consulting and uh, energy all the way to technology. I started my career in Brazil, but um, thanks to to work opportunities, I managed to leave and work in a number of countries across uh, the Americas, uh, Europe, and, uh, and Asia Pacific as well. I qualified as an executive coach uh, a couple of decades uh, ago, and I've been also able to dedicate some of my time advising and coaching uh, both in, in the corporate and the NGO space from a, from a, coaching, uh, from a coaching standpoint. Booking has been one of those happy accidents, although the timing of it maybe wasn't as happy. I joined Booking at the beginning of the pandemic, so so we, we can talk about that. But it's been a, a happy accident in the sense that we, we, we came across each other and uh, at, a, at a stage where Booking was, was looking to mature a lot of the work it, it was doing in the HR space. But for me also, the opportunity to connect with a company uh, whose mission is uh, is to to help everyone to connect to experience the world right to travel it, it has a deep connection for me right because travel has has always played an important role in my in my life in my upbringing uh, so so it's it's a, it's a great place to be in right now yeah and it's great I mean obviously your background in in consulting and, and obviously you're qualified as an executive coach I imagine these are 
skills that are helpful to have as a chief people officer. Definitely, definitely. There's there's a few skills I'd say are more important to uh, a chief people officer or or an HR generalist in general than uh, than the skills you learned with uh, with coaching. So booking booking operates in over two hundred countries, uh, in my understanding. So how do you approach creating kind of an overarching talent strategy for a hybrid workforce that's both globally distributed and, and internationally focused? Yeah, I mean, look, the the, um, the the workforce of booking has been geographically distributed from uh, from a long time, right? So we have a number of companies uh, as part of our portfolio at Booking Holdings. Booking.com is the biggest uh, is the biggest operating company in the group. Uh, we have about uh, twelve thousand people around the world, and it is very diverse, right? We hire all over the world. We have about one hundred and forty nationalities. So in a way. Um, the the management of that workforce around the world is not something new. It's not something that was fundamentally changed. I would say from uh, after the pandemic, for example, like many other organizations. But it's something we've we've gotten used to doing for for a long time. Everything we do in terms of the management of the workforce, in terms of our or kind of our talent strategy, is done to support or or strategy as a business, right? And I think that is probably one of the most uh, one of the most important things is that we don't think about a, st- a talent strategy without thinking in every step how it is supporting the strategy of the business, the goals we're trying to achieve in one year, in three years, and in five years. I think that helps us clarify, articulate, clarify, focus the messages for a workforce, and therefore it helps us keep a pretty broad, pretty uh, diverse and geographically uh, distributed workforce, kind of you no know, rowing in in the same direction. If that makes sense, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And you know, I think we've seen looking at organisations across the world over the sort of last 10, 15 years. You know, HR's kind of been on a journey from you know really was a support function into to being a strategic partner in in many companies now, and hopefully in more companies as as we move forward as well. And I think what you said there is so important, connecting the people strategy to actually the business strategy, what the business is trying to achieve in the next three years. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's there's um, and you have seen this. There's there's a percentage, and I don't know what that percentage is, but there's a percentage of any kind of HR strategy that you could argue is generic enough that it applies to any organization that's trying to deliver value to customers in some way. And I'd say the beauty of that, of that part of HR that doesn't change, is that it makes our roles very transferable, right? There's a reason why I was able to move all the way from from financial services to education, media, energy, and technology. They're very different sectors, but there are certain underlying principles and needs and and uh, and kind of requirements that that are there regardless of what the sector is. But then there's something about the uniqueness of the strategy of a given organization. What is it that they're trying to do at a specific point in time? And that's where usually I see the kind of the the, the breakdown between kind of uh, HR strategies and business strategy is that they 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 are tempted at times to stay too much into the generic strategy, meaning. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. It's like you know hiring great people, making sure you're. As they come in, you onboard them effectively. You develop them well. You pay them, pay them well, etc. Uh, but, but what is you know? How do you then make decisions around what do you focus on? What do you double down your investment on? 
for you to be able to make a good decision around that, you need to truly understand <laughs> what is it that you're trying to optimize for through a business strategy. Uh, and um, and then again, for us, it's been it's been a journey. I think we were not there a few years ago, and we've been getting better at, at opening those discussions, deepening the conversations with the business to explore trade-offs. And and now I think we're much more focused than we were a few a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, really good. Let's talk about a little bit about the culture side now. So creating and maintaining a sense of culture in a hybrid and distributed workforce you know, it can be challenging. Can you elaborate on how you've been able to foster a, a strong company culture, especially as, you know, more employees are working remotely and, and across different time zones? Yeah, look, I mean, I think like uh, all companies, right, it's early days still, even though it feels like the whole pandemic thing has been going for a while, it's still early days. I would say first link to what I was mentioning regarding the distributed workforce we have, and we have had for a number of years, this part of it, which is not new, right? I mean, meaning, you know, if you have people in Amsterdam, even though we have, uh, you know, it's our, probably our biggest hub across the group, those individuals, many of them, most of them, uh, were used to working with colleagues who are in other parts of the world, colleagues that they don't see more than, uh, you know, once a quarter or a couple times a year. So in a way, there's there's an element of this whole kind of hybrid work and remote work that is not completely new. What might be new is that if you and I were working in the same office, now maybe we don't bump into each other every day, uh, but we we had that kind of muscle developed to work with other colleagues from other places without being in person with them. So so a lot of what we've we've tried to do is to to reconnect with that, right? To 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 re remember and to remind each other in a way that we have those muscles and that we know how to do that. I think the challenge is then you're, you're scaling that, you're massifying it, and now it's no longer just a few working relationships, it's many more working relationships, sometimes within teams that were used to being together, that you have to uh, reset, maybe reset is too strong, maybe it's, uh, it's evolved. Um, so to keep that connection, we do it in a number of ways. I, I don't think there's a silver bullet, right? We have. Uh, internal communication, uh, intranets uh, across the group. We don't use necessarily the same across all companies in the group. Booking.com, we use a, a platform. It's a classic uh, social media type of platform. We have a very high level of engagement from employees. Right. The beauty of those platforms is that you can you can you can track, monitor, measure. Right. You know what's happening. You know what topics are coming up. You know how many people are viewing a video or post or liking it or commenting it, you can uh, you can track the sentiment. Is it positive? Is it negative? What's going on? And and we've been using that for a number of years and we've developed a culture of high engagement across the organization. That's super helpful to keep things connected. It's helpful also because the way we've developed that, it's always focused on business, uh, but we have a perhaps a broader perspective on what do we mean by business. If you think about our workforce in the Netherlands as an example, we have a majority of employees working in the Netherlands who are not from the Netherlands, right? We've been hired from all over the world. You come in as a so-called expat and you have to get engaged with that community. Maybe you're looking for schools for your kids. Maybe you're trying to figure out how to buy an apartment, how to find uh, someone to take care of your pet or whatever it is. And we've been pretty 
you know, kind of generous, so to speak, in supporting those types of connections and conversations because they are around you connecting with your community internally at working with the community you, bus you do business in. So that's kind of another, another angle. And then we're working, uh, you know, deliberately on culture, meaning on, you know, mindsets, uh, behaviors, the symbols in the organization, the processes. There's a, there's a combination of things that come together that help people understand what is it that I need to do in order to belong here or to do well here. And we don't leave that to chance, right? We are deliberate in trying to shape those elements so that we can, you know, it's not just maintain the culture because you want your culture to be flexible so it can evolve, but you do it in a way that you're, 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 con you're constantly conscious of how you're shaping the culture, right? And, and then you can, if you're conscious about it, then you can make choices around kind of going you know, left or going right. So it's a combination of those things that, that we're doing. And I think it's, it's early days, David, in the sense that if you ask me, okay, how, how do you measure that today versus you know, how I was working four years ago, five years ago? I don't know for sure yet, but that's an area of, of interest. This episode is sponsored by HiBob. Global companies often have dozens of HR tech apps that very few people use. HiBob's vision was to create an HEM suite that everyone working at a global company actually wants to use. In fact, it's not unusual for 70 to 80% of employees to connect to Bob on a regular basis. HR professionals use Bob for greater oversight and visibility of the business. Managers use Bob for insights and resources to lead people more effectively. Employees use Bob for tools and information to connect, be productive and grow. Finance uses Bob for business information and analysis and IT uses it for orderly task management and accessing people data. Go to highbob.com, that's H-I-B-O-B.com, and meet Bob, the modern HR platform that offers HCM for everyone. I was actually at your offices in September, actually, and obviously you in your your office in in Amsterdam, your new headquarters. It's 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 pretty new, isn't it? It's only been open a few months. Oh yes. And and I was just wondering that as you were going through the the design of that office, obviously that was I guess during and coming out of the pandemic. You know, were there certain things that that, that you did in the office to to kind of recognize that we were going to be in a slightly different era now when it came to hybrid work? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's it's a natural challenge. Also, that office we started developing it like you know eight years ago, right? So, so you could argue also by the time we were getting ready to open it, you know, it, it had been designed way before the pandemic was in anyone's radar. Uh, the good the good news is, as we were in the pandemic, still kind of doing the development, we recognized there were some trends that were shifting. We weren't sure about what was going to happen with remote and hybrid work. But we recognized there was a high probability that we're going to end up at least for a number of years in, in a more hybrid environment. So what that allowed us to do is to, to kind of rethink about some of the structuring of the workspaces. So we had a greater variety of workspaces for different kinds of activities. Yes, meeting rooms. Yes, desks on the kind of extremes maybe. But phone booths, for example, 
that you, know, you can put a number of those kind of around the floors. We have seen those and we use an app that will tell you kind of which ones are available so you can find it you know, on the go. And spaces for more focused work and quieter spaces, spaces for kind of broader collaboration feels like you're in a cafe or even using a, one of the three kind of a restaurant spaces we have to also sit down and people use those for meetings. The way we did it at Booking.com, for example, is we have a strong uh, uh, guidance or recommendation for people to spend about, you know, kind of about 40% of their time at the office in a quarter. So we're not saying two days a week, but some people will do two days a week. Some people might not come for a week or two and they might come more. Uh, some people are coming more often. Some people are coming a bit less. We're trying to understand what's what's happening. What is that that data? What's that information telling us? And I don't think the info just tells you something. I think the info invites questions that then you have to engage with with teams and see if there are there any patterns. Are there certain job families that are coming more or less? Or and then you compare what people are doing with our quarterly engagement surveys that have some dimensions around work to see if there are any kind of connections, any correlations. Is there a story that's building up there that will help us make better decisions and better adjustments? And, and I say that because it is it feels very dynamic still. It feels like teams are still experimenting and trying to find kind of the right the right balance. To your point around Microsoft study and a number of other studies, right, that are they're helping people understand what kind of work makes uh, makes most sense uh, together or apart. One thing we've we've really tried to get across in the organization is that, I don't, it's not that I, I don't believe in, in those uh, analysis of the kinds of work that are important. I think there's absolutely, you know, there's good kind of foundations for that. But in a way, it, it's a bit of a, in my opinion, a bit of a reductionist view of the importance of being together at the office. You know, and, and we've used that kind of old phrase of, you know, we're not here just for us, we're here for each other. And the reason that's important is going, it links with your question around culture, right? Is if I... If I just take a operational or admin or you know kind of functional view of when people should be at the office or not, I, I'm I may be missing a trick, right? The perspective that the office becomes more valuable. It's a network effect, right? The more people are at the office, it's more valuable for more people. So so early on we had the classic issue, right? People come to the office and they say, well, I come to the office, but I have to be on, on Zoom calls most of the day, but there aren't enough, you know, kind of meeting rooms, so I'll go back home. Well, then it stands to reason that, yes, we're global, but if more people are at the office, arguably you might need to be in less Zoom calls because more people are at the office and you can meet. So how do you break that cycle? And I don't think there is a, a formula to do that, but it's a mindset perspective. Right? It's saying, look, David, I don't want you to come to the office because it's in your job description or because it's our policy. I want you to think that when you come to the office, you're giving me and a number of other colleagues an opportunity to connect with you, to see you, to bump into you, to have a chat at the coffee line or to have lunch together or to swing by your desk and, and ask you a quick question. That is very valuable, but that only happens if all of us are a little bit focused on that, even if from a selfish standpoint, you'd prefer to be at home doing some kind of work, well, there's a value for the rest of us. Yeah, those serendipitous encounters, you, you don't get those virtually really, do you? But you do get them if you're together. Uh, as you said, yeah. the coffee line, the water cooler, which is obviously the, the word that we usually 
we usually hear about that. So, so, so Paolo, you, you, you mentioned the importance of, of having well-rounded employees who can take work mindsets and behaviors beyond the workplace. You know, how does Booking approach the, the 360 degree employee experience? So we, we've become, I think, much more focused in the last few years around employee experience. It's not like we, we didn't do it, but I think we've, we've become more deliberate around it. And particularly from a perspective of the link that we were talking at the beginning of our conversation between HR strategy and the business strategy, right? As, as a business strategy, when we want to make it easier for everyone to experience the world, and there's meaning behind each of those words, making it easier. What does it mean, right? To remove friction, to kind of, to make uh, travel kind of a good experience, even before you start to travel. Everyone, it means it's fully inclusive. We have, you know, customers that book, you know, five thousand a night hotels, and customers that book, you know, kind of a twenty, you know, ten dollar a night uh, a tent somewhere. And experiencing the world also kind of what does it mean and the experience it's 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 really around the, the full cycle right before you you you'll take that experience with you and and when we th we think about that we thought about how we build that mindset and that culture that's really focused at that of course it's focused externally but from an HR standpoint we thought how can we develop an experience internally that is somewhat coherent with what we're trying to do for the world, right? So, so it's as you know, as above, see below type of thing, right? And and it is hard. You know the challenges around HR systems and integrating different HR systems and how not user friendly some of them are. So we've been putting a lot of focus over the last uh, three years on what are the small tweaks we can do that will make that experience for employees and for managers and for leaders in the organization make it smoother, make it make it easier, make it more kind of value add when they're connecting with things. And, and it's a journey. We're, we're not there. At least we're not where we want to be yet. But we've made good progress because we are thinking about that and we're trying to eliminate unnecessary stop uh, steps. We're trying to simplify things. We're trying to integrate systems, reduce the number of systems in different instances we have. So that's one part of it. The other part, the other way to look at the 360 experience is this notion that you bring all of yourself to work and and you know the, the the lines right the boundaries between personal life and and work are are more and more kind of blurred in a way, uh, and we want to create a space where people have a great experience not just while they're out at the office but particularly in the example of the high level of expats we have working in our offices how do we help them integrate and connect with the communities uh, how do we make it easier for them and their families when they're moving with families to to integrate and to feel really at home wherever they are. Uh, when we think about uh, development, for example, of course, a lot of our uh, learning and our development in the organization is focused at you know, helping you be more effective at doing your job or help you prepare to be more effective at the next level. But equally, a lot of those skills are helping you just be a better person, maybe a better decision maker, maybe someone who's more aware of their uh, biases before they get into situations, become uh, a better listener, uh, become a better negotiator. Those are things that don't just help you at, at work. They help you in, in life in general. And that's the other angle of that kind of 360 way of thinking about about uh, about our, our employees and their experience. Yeah. And, and, and obviously a big part of employee experiences and, and in terms of understanding it and, and improving it is around employee listening. 
how do you approach employee listening and, and, and how do you ensure that it's maybe not a one-size-fits-all approach? Absolutely. I mean, we, we, are, we take it very seriously. And uh, one of the ways we do it is exactly what we were mentioning on kind of intranets, for example. The beauty of, of, of those platforms is that they allow dialogue, right? It's not just, you know, kind of top-down broadcasting, but you're, you're connecting with the, with the community you understand how they're engaging with the message, you know, kind of what kind of emotion it's generating, what kind of questions it's generating, what kind of misinterpretations or confusion it might be generating. And then it opens up space for, for connection and dialogue. We started uh, one of the silver linings of the pandemic, which was, which was terrible in general and particularly bad, right, for our industry. But one of the silver linings is I think we got a lot better at communication. So making communication more frequent uh, making it more accessible to people, uh, making it more transparent, this notion of, hey, we're not just going to communicate when we, we have something to communicate. Sometimes we just want to be there for people and say, we don't know, or we're not sure what's going to happen next, but be accessible and being uh, vulnerable, but also creating that dialogue, not just um, online, but on calls and now uh, more kind of more recently, right after we've uh, reopened offices, also kind of in person. And that means doing much more frequent Q and A's, uh, ask me anything type of uh, type of interactions, uh, sending surveys for people to uh, throw in their questions and vote the questions so we can prioritize those that got kind of most interest in that type of thing. We do we do do uh, the um, engagement surveys. We do it kind of once once a quarter. We have once a year. We do a deeper one, and the other uh, three quarters we do a very light touch, you know, five minutes just to get some feedback. And then different parts of the business can run also listening exercises, either through surveys or focus groups, when they have something that's particularly relevant for them. What we try to do, though, is to keep all that all, all the insights from those interactions uh, funneled into kind of one space so we can cross-reference uh, you know, the information and develop insights that might help us uh, either take more effective action for the organization or just become better at communicating and, and engaging with people. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. I know that, that Booking has adopted a, a skills-based approach to, to workforce planning. Can you explain how this approach is, is helping to shape your, your talent management strategies? Yeah, it's very early for us. So we've started it, arguably, uh, beginning of this year, I would say. We were planning last year. We started beginning of this year. We still have a long way, I think, in the journey. And a little bit of it, the, the first step that we're working on is taxonomy, right? It's, it's skills taxonomy and it's getting a deeper understanding of what are the skills and the capabilities you need to get jobs done. That's one, one angle. The other angle is how do 
uh, skills and capabilities? How do you group them together and form jobs? Uh, arguably, in the future, you may not need the construct of a job. You have the equivalent of what you know, Reed was talking about in you know, tours of duty or kind of projects or whatever it is. I think we might get there at some point and maybe not in every, uh, in every role. Uh, I think it might be a bit too chaotic if you go 100% there. But, but you, you find a better balance and you question why are we grouping skills and capabilities in a certain way, not in a different way. So it's helped us clarify the skills that are, that are needed to perform uh, certain, certain, certain roles in the organization or certain things. But also it helped us start questioning what are those groupings and how we want to make that together. We are at the beginning of that journey in that space. We're also running a couple of pilots on uh, on the marketplace, right? So using kind of the foundation of skills-based management, uh, opening up opportunities for uh, a, a, an area, a function, for example, to uh, to post jobs or kind of projects that might be 10% of someone's time or 20% or 5% or it's, uh, you know, a week. And then people can apply to that. And we're learning through that process how to how to navigate the governance of that process, right? Because you, you don't want to, on, on the one hand, you don't want to move people away uh, without alignment with their management and their teams, or even like move 20% of someone's time away. That may make a difference. But also you're trying to, you're trying to make sure that you are not propagating a number of projects that might be kind of optional in a way, and you are feeding optional projects because all of a sudden you have people or no certain percent of time people to do it. So you have to be very careful about that and very uh, and very focused. So we are we are in that space in a kind of early kind of early stages. I do think it's gonna provide us amazing opportunities for for growth and, and development of our people, but it's gonna really help in the mindset of the organization on how to think about a body of work and how that body of work is helping us deliver something in the organization. I think that's going to be fundamental. The big change we've been discussing from the past, because I was personally, I was uh, reluctant or cynical, I would say, when one more team started talking about this, because I know, and we all know how, how much time we've wasted on competency models, you know, 10 and 15 and 20 years ago. And this has a bit of a taste of that. But I think that the biggest change we've seen now is the enablement of technology, right? Is, is there something in, in technology now that could enable us to not just do this better, but keep it up to date and maintain it better and then therefore make it something that's sustainable over time? So I'm excited about that, but it's 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 early days. We'll see. We we are we, we think there's good potential, but it we're we're early on. Next next two questions, Pat. I'd love to take you take you back to maybe when you joined booking.com right at the start of the pandemic, how did you approach um, your talent management initiatives for your, for your tech talent during, during that time? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we had, um, the impact was massive, right? With our combat, we were like, I think 80, 80% down on sales or something like that. People stopped traveling. The, the, the biggest impact we saw in that kind of a year and a half to two years actually was in the, what we call the volume-based roles. So roles that are focused on, you know, customer service or or, or credit or even like some of the the commercial and, and partner management, right? There was there was just the volumes were not there, not much was happening, and there was a, a big impact there. 
uh, which ultimately in 2021 led to a, a little bit of a restructure like most other organizations did. The difference for us, I would say, is that rather than jumping the gun and doing it too quickly, we took our time. We, we, we try to understand what was happening around the market. We try to look at the different options we had. And, and that enabled us to, to I think, cut uh, less deeply than some other organizations and to do a process that I think was also, in average, a lot more constructive because we managed to help the people that were affected by the restructure find roles uh, pretty, pretty quickly and pretty effectively elsewhere. But for tech and product, we were still focused on developing things and, and building for the future. So I would argue, in a way, it was easier in that space uh, because in, 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 in some ways we removed some of the, the, the constant kind of immediate pressure that the teams have to kind of to uh, fight fires or do what's like important for tomorrow and could kind of plan and do a few things for the future. The, fl the flip side of it is that maybe we, we were also kind of on survival mode, so we weren't investing as aggressively in some of the technology kind of angle for the organization. So, so there was a balance to be held. What really helped us was to keep close, to communicate, to engage, to have open dialogue, and to make sure everyone's more or less aligned with what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing, for how long we think we'll be doing it this way. And, uh, and then we, we focused on that. I, I, we did not do as much in, for example, traditional learning and development. We did not have as much in terms of uh, internal mobility. It was really more around focusing teams on this is an opportunity now to, uh, to integrate, to evolve, to improve the things we've been doing and to think about the future. And it paid dividends because the, the investment of, of time that, that we had and the focus we had at that time helped us get really well positioned for when the markets started, started opening up for travel, we did particularly well, right? There's a number of uh, markets where we, we got, you know, kind of market share or we got or more visibility or better positioning. So I think it paid, it paid dividends. Yeah, yeah. And for you personally, Paolo, was he joining just before the pandemic started, you know, as CHRO, you know, that must have presented some pretty unique leadership challenges for you. How, how did you navigate those initial months and, and what lessons did you learn um, that have been valuable for, for your role as, uh, as, as, as Chief People Officer? Yeah, my, my timing was, uh, was uh, impeccable, right? I joined at 2nd of March of 2020. Two weeks later, I was with a group of you know, cross kind of functional leaders, uh, you know, where we were making the decision to close 200 offices around the world and sending people to work from home and figuring out even how to enable them to work from home in some areas is very straightforward. But if you're in like customer service where you have systems and infrastructure at the office, how do we make it work? So it was, it was, uh, it was uh, incredible and, and very hard in the very beginning. The, um, it's interesting, the, the, the flip side of that is there's something that happens when you go through a crisis, right, around focus, around clarity of uh, decision-making, around decomplexifying things in the business that actually can be pretty healthy, right? It's, maybe it's the equivalent, now these days everyone's talking about longevity and the kinds of things you can do for longevity, including, for example, you know, ice baths and whatnot. 
And when you think about that, right, the, the value of that is like, you know, strengthening your immune system. It helps you purge, you know, stuff that doesn't work. There's something around that that I think happened then and that we were able to to align with and to leverage in a way, right? Well, as I've mentioned, we got better at communications in the organization. We became more focused, more visible, more connected. That was welcome and we haven't stopped ever since. We're like, okay, this is good. We had some of our highest engagement scores at the beginning of the pandemic, after the pandemic was already going on. And I think it was because we became more visible, more connected, and we were there available for our employees in a way that they had not seen us. And they were looking for it as well, right? So so that I think is one of the one of the learnings for me is is uh, the visibility, the importance of communication and engagement. I think that's super, super important. One of the things you do constantly is you're picking up sound bites from across the organization and you're integrating those sound bites and that's helping you make a decision or influence a team from a perspective that maybe other functions don't have, right? That's one of the benefits of HR being a horizontal function is we we have an alibi to get involved in everything. And I think that the pandemic almost like refined that instinct, right? And and I think now with investment in in analytics capabilities, it's it's a good combination, right? I mean, intuition uh, is is important, but then having uh, good quality kind of insights to support or challenge your intuition is also fundamental. Yeah, and actually that that leads on nicely to to the next question, Paolo. I had the pleasure of seeing um, Antonio, your your head of people analytics, speak at the recent Unleashed conference in in Paris, and very impressive story. He was telling about some of the work that you're that you're doing at Booking using uh, people data and analytics. I was wondering two things really. You know, firstly, what is the role of people analytics in supporting the work that you're doing in in HR? Uh, uh, booking, but also how does it help you uh, as a chief people officer as well? Look, uh, pe- people analytics and my team knows that I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed on it, but not because I think you need that kind of hard data for everything you do. It's about actually first helping us strengthen the the mindset and the behavioral elements of analytics and kind of uh, critical thinking around the organization, right? So I, it's almost like, how do I create demand for analytics through my HR advisory or business partners uh, community and through our managers and leaders communities, right? And and you do that in a number of different ways, but, but part of the work is that, and it's not just the analytics team that does that, but they help us do that. And that's the first step. Once you create that, that connection, that demand, then of course you have to deliver and you have to to supply for for that demand. And that means uh, looking at how you can cross-reference data points, information, insights, uh, sound bites, and, and start making sense of them. If not to give you a conclusion to improve the quality of your questions or to improve the quality of the experiments you run to test kind of a hypothesis. And, and for me, that's... Uh, that's 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 super important. The connection between the two, the capability, but the mindset. Because more often than not, it's been my experience that organizations have a lot more data points already than they know how to leverage. So it goes back to if you're not really kind of being driven by certain question marks, then you're not really invited to make those connections, right? And and uh, that that's that's how it's so important for me. We are. 
uh, venturing into predictive analytics. We're running some some models and experimenting to see how how truly predictive they are. But they've already helped open better quality conversations with managers, for example. So it doesn't matter if the predictive is working perfectly or not. What it, what matters is it's allowing us to have a level of conversation with managers and leaders that we didn't have uh, two and three and four years ago. That's already valuable, for example. Last, last two questions, Paolo. Firstly, if you had one piece of advice for those listening who maybe aspire to be a chief people officer one day, what would it be? Uh, advi- advice, advice, advice. The... The, um, the first thing is, is really make sure that you understand why you want to be a chief people officer. That's valid for many other things. Quite, quite frankly, I've seen people that want to be in a certain role because it's like an autopilot. It's a default mode. And they haven't really asked themselves, what is it about that that, that, that really speaks to, to them, to what they want to do? And like any role... It has a variety of activities and responsibilities that might not be suitable for everyone or that people might not like. I've seen a handful, not many, but a handful of, of colleagues that have made it all the way to chief uh, people officer only to not enjoy it and go back into, for example, a chief talent officer role, which I, I, I joke that is the happiest role of all because it's all about you know uh, recruiting and growing and making so... So it, it, you got to really ask yourself why you want to do that. And the reason I think that's also helpful is that it will help connect with what are your spikes and what is it that you bring to the table from that role, right? It's a very broad role. You can do it in lots of different ways. So understanding also, if you want to be a chief people officer, what's your angle? You know, What is it that you've been practicing and you've developed particularly well that may bring an edge to how you're going to create uh, value from that role. I'd say that that's fundamental. And then the obvious one also is, is um, you got to get to know the business. You know, you got to, again, it goes full, full circle to our conversation around strategy. If you don't understand the business, how the company creates value and captures value, then it's very hard for you to make high quality choices on how you're going to align your function to make the most possible impact in the organization. So to understand what is it that's going on in that organization at a given time, and at that time, what is it that's most important, I think it's very, very important. Yeah. A chief beef officer is a business leader who just happens to be running the HR function. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, true for all C-suite execs, right? You're no longer there representing your function or your business. You're there as a leader of the organization, and yes, you have a connection and a responsibility or accountability for that part of the organization. But once you're there with that team, you're not there to defend that. You're there to help that team make better quality decisions for the overall organization. Coming to the last question, I can't believe it is the last question, but but we, here we are. And this is the question we're asking everyone in this series. And we're taking advantage of the fact that we're coming to the end of 2023 and about to enter 2024. As we approach the end of the year, what what do you think will be the key priorities for for HR as as we head into the new year? Oh, I mean, that's a good one. I mean, we we all look at some of those reports, right, with curiosity to see what are some of the general priorities. I do think it depends a lot on the company, right? It goes back to my point where there are some generalities we can talk about in HR, like, you know, how do we leverage the generative AI across the organization or for HR in particular? How do we uh, uh, simplify kind of systems? How do we 
set up, uh, you know, kind of talent uh, acquisition in what's going to continue to be a more uh, and more kind of competitive environment, particularly for tech talent. So all those things, I think they are, uh, they're going to be true in general. For us, uh, we are really looking at uh, integrating and simplifying kind of our systems or processes we're working with, with a number of partners on that already. Uh, continuing to build this like strong employee experience that is more of a mirror or is more ins ins inspiring of what we want to do for our customers. That's going to be uh, important. Culture, I've mentioned that's gonna that's an ongoing journey. Everything we do in terms of mindsets, behaviors, ways of working. And the other one, quite frankly, I always go back to, and, and it's not kind of a new one in a way, but is uh, management and leadership development. I think that is probably the single most important lever you can develop in an organization uh, to deliver on on kind of on, on better results and improvement is having managers and leaders that are showing in the best possible way that are growing their, their development and, the, and they're developing their teams as well. No, no, totally agree. Totally agree. Paolo, thank you so much for being a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Can, can you let listeners know how they can find you on social media and find out more about your work at Booking? Well, first, thanks a lot for the invitation. Uh, great to be here with you. Uh, and I, I'm not very big on social media, so I mean, I, I, I don't post a lot on LinkedIn or, or anywhere else. P people will see some. I have some interviews and some things. If people Google me, they'll, they'll find information. But I, I, yeah, I don't have a lot of stuff out there. You're being very humble, Paolo. But, but uh, thanks very much for, for being on the show. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for tuning into this episode. And thank you to Paolo for sharing his inspiring journey as Chief People Officer at Booking Holdings and Booking.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming channel so that we can keep producing the show. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Indeed, the last episode of 2023. Until then, take care and stay well.